Hey everyone, it's Hillel Neuer from UN Watch. I'm standing here at Berlin City Hall to pay tribute to the moral courage of the mayor, Franziska Giffey. Two months ago, she canceled an award ceremony here where they were going to give a medal to Navi Pillay, chair of the UN Commission of Inquiry on Israel. Navi Pillay should not be celebrated. She should be condemned. Today, she's presenting a report before the General Assembly, and she's supposed to be the impartial chair of an inquiry on Israel and the Palestinians, an inquiry that was created in May 2021 following the war with Hamas of that year. But Navi Pillay is not impartial, the very opposite. She signed a petition to governments lobbying them to, quote, sanction apartheid Israel. Following the war of May 2021 between Israel and Hamas, she declared that Israel was entirely guilty. She is also someone who this past summer, when a member of her inquiry made anti-Semitic remarks, ranting about the Jewish lobby that controls social media, she wrote a letter defending and justifying her colleague, who actually was condemned by 17 countries, the European Union, and three leading UN officials. So Navi Pillay is someone who is breaching basic ethics, breaching the UN requirement of impartiality. She should be condemned today as she presents her report, which only mentions Israel. She is supposed to, by her mandate, examine both sides. Once again, for the second time in a row, the report only mentions Israel. It only condemns Israel. There is no mention of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the Palestinian Authority, the Islamic Republic of Iran and their role only mentions Israel, only condemns Israel. So I'm here in Berlin. This is where the mayor took the noble stand. I wish that the UN would do the same thing instead of celebrating Navi Pillay. She should be condemned. Please go to our website, unwatch.org. We have a petition to disband this unethical inquiry. It's time to eliminate this Inquisition. It's not an inquiry. It's as fair and objective as the Spanish Inquisition. It's time to dismantle it. Go to our website, unwatch.org, sign the petition. It's time to stand up for justice. It's time to eliminate the Pile Commission of Inquiry. Thank you. More and more countries in the Middle East see Israel as the solution, not the problem. The reason that the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Bahrainis are reaching out to Israel, and to a certain extent Egypt and Jordan as well, and now Morocco, is because they want more of Israel, not less of Israel. Hillel Noya, so often the lone voice talking truth to power at a UN on interminable mission creep. Western countries surrendering their resolve to dictatorships. Members, candidates for election, have to show that they have a record of promoting human rights. Members are obliged to uphold the highest standards of human rights. So I didn't make up those rules. The UK didn't make up those rules. America didn't make up those rules. Those are the United Nations rules adopted by vast majority of the General Assembly. And these rules are being violated. And you talk to us about being sort of a lone voice. Very few speak out. Most countries, they want to go along to get along. They don't want to speak out. They don't want to make a mess. Diplomat and international lawyer Hillel Neuer is the executive director of UN Watch, the human rights NGO in Geneva. Since 2009, Hillel's headed the annual Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy, a renowned international gathering providing a global platform to courageous pro-democracy dissidents from all over the world who put their lives on the line to demand fundamental freedom in oppressive regimes. I was privileged to have been part of it when hosting and interviewing the session with Farida Khalaf, the Yazidi girl who escaped ISIS. And as America loosens its grip in Geneva, and China, once a diplomatic backwater, now asserting itself throughout the UN, Hillel says the repurposing of the United States' goals must start back home. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we experienced in America in the past five years, known to some as the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. Uh, you, if you if you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, the journalist, and often it's an anti-liberalism. So that that, to be honest, really really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to 
to be honest, to be, to be truth tellers. In 2016, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel adopted a resolution declaring Hillel Noya Day, citing his role as one of the world's foremost human rights advocates and his contributions to promoting peace, justice and human rights around the world. Actually, you're lucky I'm back. I nearly retired the podcast after my last guest, Julie Birchill, revealed this about Israelis and the Birmingham accent. So, I've got such a funny fact about Israel and Burmese. About 15 years ago, an Israeli bar advertised in a Birmingham... I'm not making this up and everyone says I am. They're advertising a Birmingham local newspaper Did they want to go and work in Tel Aviv. It was because to the Israeli ear, the Brahmin accent is apparently wildly sexy and drives them mad. That's unbelievable. Well, I know, yeah. I should try it out. <laughs> Do you think I can get anyone I wanted? Yeah. On the beach, all right. Oh, yeah. All right, kid. How am you, Bab? <laughs> you want to come for a drink? And scroll back a further episode for Douglas Murray. I'm very struck by the way in which Jews get caught up in the anti-Westernism of our day, in Israel and in the rest of the West. I think that people have to realize this. They have to have uh, good antennae. It can come from the right as well as the left. And Jews very often get caught up in almost anything. You know, they occupy Wall Street. Goes to anti-Semitism. BLM goes to anti-Semitism. We just have to keep our antennae very alert. Jews and non-Jews. I, I, I don't like philo-Semites because I don't believe in philo-Semites. Just friends of Jews. People are friends of the Jewish people. I started the interview with Hillel Neuer with what I thought was a rather innocuous open question. But what I got back was quite a profound answer about the politics of language, where Hillel Neuer grew up. Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, the UN is your workplace and Geneva is your home now, but it's the bilingual hub of Montreal, Canada, where you hail from. How much do you think growing up in a jointly English and French milieu influenced you? Mm, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, the truth is that uh, when I grew up in Montreal, um, the city was linguistically divided. So the uh, in some ways, like other places in the world, uh, I'm actually currently visiting Jerusalem and you know this is a, a, in many ways linguistically a divided city. Arabs have their neighborhoods, Jews have their neighborhoods. They can they can mix, but that's just the way things are. Montreal was the same way when I grew up. So there was a street called Saint Lawrence Boulevard, or in French called Boulevard Saint Laurent. Everything east of Saint Lawrence was French Catholic. Everything west was English Protestant, and or that's where and that's where the Jews ended up moving when they immigrated to Canada in the early twentieth century. They were welcomed in the. They were allowed to go to the Protestant schools. So, uh, for for uh, educational purposes, Jews were Protestants, and Jews went to the Protestant schools, and they lived in 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 that in the English areas. So, so I grew up in an entirely English uh, milieu, and French was there, but it's only if you went to when I went to the baseball game that was in the French part of town, the the stadium, and you, you did have to speak French from time to time, but not very much, to be honest. That's changed since I grew up in the past several decades the city of Montreal has become much more French and uh, English is mostly prohibited uh, in terms of in, in, in public and the language laws are actually quite uh, getting stricter and stricter and quite far reaching and draconian, I would say. And so uh, for the past several decades, many members of my community, the English speakers of Montreal are probably got, uh, dwindled to half. It's probably half the amount of English schools there were when I grew up. Many English people migrated to uh, Toronto. But to be honest, because of the politics, uh, we weren't we were kind of resentful of French. And then I moved to Geneva and then and then I needed to speak French. So I, I, I my French was was quite poor, to be honest. I had studied it in school, but we didn't take it very seriously. And, and uh, my friends and I never really used it very much. But now that I live in Geneva, then I, I speak it and and I recently passed a, a French test, so I'm certified that I speak French. Well, congratulations. And there I was hearing you speak in French in Geneva, thinking that you'd had a head start being from Quebec. I had somewhat, somewhat, <laughs> but 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 I'm Jewish, but I'm Ashkenazi Jewish, which means from, from European stock. The Jews who are from, let's say, Morocco, they speak French at home. So it would depend on the background of the person. And certainly there are many people in Montreal who are French speaking. 
but uh, my community typically was not. Very good. So now you are executive director of UN Watch, and it seems fighting a daily battle countering abuses of the UN's intended mission uh, is your aim. Iran elected to the UN Women's Rights Commission, where walking without a veil is an act of civil disobedience. It's dangerous. The UN Human Rights Council, which includes Libya, Qatar, Cuba and Venezuela, it seems inbuilt, institutionalized problems for you to deal with, which are enormous for one person, for one NGO to deal with. Yes, uh, we, we wish that we were less solitary in our mission and in our positions. But it often is the case, Johnny, that at the United Nations, for a variety of reasons, uh, we often are one of the only voices calling out the utter hypocrisy that you described, listing some of the world's worst dictatorships, regimes that put innocent people. Cuba is a country that throws artists in prison. Venezuela, five million people have fled because the state has collapsed and it's due to an awful regime. Uh, with a failed economy and a failed political system and a failed uh, system of human rights. There is no human rights in Venezuela, in Cuba, in China, in Libya, Pakistan, very limited. They're also a member of the Human Rights Council. So they should never have been elected. Uh, some people think that's some kind of a Western colonial attitude that only some countries should be elected. No, it's not. The, the rules of the United Nations, the rules of the Human Rights Council, Resolution 60-251, adopted on 15th of March, 2006, state very clearly, members, candidates for election, have to show that they have a record of promoting human rights. Members are obliged to uphold the highest standards of human rights. So I didn't make up those rules. The UK didn't make up those rules. America didn't make up those rules. Those are the United Nations rules adopted by vast majority of the General Assembly. And these rules are being violated. And you talked to us about being sort of a lone voice very few speak out. Most countries are, they want to go along to get along. They don't want to speak out. They don't want to make a mess. And they do deals, very cynical deals. So when we oppose the countries you mentioned, when we speak out against China, Russia, Cuba being elected to the Human Rights Council, typically no country in the world speaks out. There are some exceptions, but typically no country speaks out. And then on the NGOs, it varies. Sometimes some of the major, we are an NGO, we work with other non-governmental organizations. Some of them do speak out, but too many of them are so close to the UN. If we talk about Amnesty International, which there's a whole controversy to go into um, that is plaguing that organization right now. But many of their top leaders um, were either at the UN or will be at the UN. I'll just name a handful. Uh, the current Secretary General, Agnes Calamard, she was a UN Special Rapporteur for the past six years. And before that, she worked at Amnesty. So it's a revolving door. First year at Amnesty, then they're here at the UN. Um, her close friend, uh, Kate Gilmore, was the Deputy High Commissioner. And before she was Deputy High Commissioner of the UN Human Rights Office, she was Deputy Secretary General of Amnesty International, working at the time for Irene Khan, back, going back about 10, 15 years ago. Irene Khan was a Secretary General. Um, Kate Gilmore was her deputy. They left under a cloud of, I don't know, scandal, but they left and they had a payoff. And then the payoff was was very uh, controversial that they got a lot of money, half a million pounds or something. It was very bizarre. Uh, so Kate Gilmore leaves Amnesty. She goes to the UN Human Rights Office. Irene Khan was the Secretary General. Uh, she leaves under a cloud. And she is now the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Speech. So it's a complete revolving door of Amnesty International and UN officials, top UN officials. And so as a result, Johnny, what you have is that a number of NGOs are very hesitant to call out the UN when it does things that are contrary to their own principles. And so what you get is too often, we're one of the few and sometimes the lone voice calling out the distortion, the hijacking, the corruption of the UN's own values. And people have the audacity, and with this I'll finish, people have the audacity to say, oh, you're against the UN. No, sir, no. When we speak out and say Gaddafi should not have been, uh, his regime should not have been chair of the Human Rights Commission, we are for the UN or for the UN Charter and those who are silent, those who are complicit and say, oh, we, we welcome this. And they pretend that they are friends of the Human Rights Commission and Council. They are not. They are handing the keys to a drunk driver. We are here today to demand what the United Nations Charter promised in 1945 when the United Nations was created 
the UN promised equal rights for all men and women and equal rights for all nations, large and small. But when we come here to the United Nations, when we stand here at the Human Rights Council, and I was just there this morning, we see something that is not consistent with this promise. We look for equal rights, but we see a Human Rights Council that is supposed to speak for victims of the world's worst violations, but instead, as you see on the signs today, there were seven reports. There were zero on Algeria, zero on China, zero on Iraq, zero on Pakistan, zero on Qatar, zero on Russia, zero on Turkey, zero on Venezuela, zero on Zimbabwe. We see that the whole world, the whole world was addressed last week and today Israel alone is criticized for an entire day. The only country in the world that is the focus of its own day, its own debate, its own agenda item. Not North Korea, not Syria, not Sudan is treated in this way. And so we're here today not to say that Israel is perfect, it can be criticized, but to say that what is happening here at the United Nations is discrimination. It is inequality. It is a violation of the UN Charter. It's a violation of what the Human Rights Council promised. So all we're asking here is to ask the United Nations to live up to its own promises. And we're here to say enough is enough. We're demanding equal rights and nothing more and nothing less. UN Watch punches above its weight. There's no question about that. How many staff do you have, Hillel? And how does a typical week in your life work? We're a small organization. We're under 10 employees. And the work varies. Sometimes three months a year, we're in session. September, March, and June, the Human Rights Council meets, and we're based in Geneva, and we participate quite comprehensively with UN sessions, speaking out on a full range of issues. In a given session, if the UN lets us speak, and they don't always, it's another subject we can come to. But when, when they let us participate as we have the right to do, we, we might take the floor 20 or 30 times in, in a month, speak out on a full range of human rights issues. And that's about three months a year when the UN is in session. When it's not in session, the Human Rights Council, we are constantly monitoring the UN. We are watching what they're doing in various bodies. When Iran gets elected to the Women's Rights Commission, uh, we're the first to expose that and to fight it. And we also work with dissidents. We work with uh, uh, Evgenia Karamorza, her husband, Vladimir Karamorza, is a hero. Um, Johnny, when you were with us in Geneva, Vladimir was poisoned twice because, because of his, his human rights work. And he still goes back to Moscow and fights for human rights in Moscow. Um, because he protested the Ukraine war, as he knew, in uh, April, he was picked up and arrested. And uh, he's been in prison since April. So it's been more than 100 days uh, for the crime of protesting the war in Ukraine. And we're working with his wife. We brought her to testify at the UN. So it's the kind of work, working with dissidents and political prisoners that we're doing throughout the year. We are also the leading group combating anti-Semitism, fighting against the pathological obsession with singling out the Jewish state, Israel. And uh, we're quite active. Uh, regularly in speaking out against UN officials, like Special Rapporteur Francesca Albanese, who often will compare Palestinians to victims, to Jewish victims of the Holocaust, by implication to uh, portray Israelis as Nazis. She's the UN expert on Palestine. So these are the kinds of things we're confronting on a regular basis. We're active on social media, press releases, interviews, the full gamut. Hillel, indeed, 2018 is when you afforded me the privilege of presenting at the UN Geneva Summit of Human Rights, a stunning parade of heroes from around the world telling their stories of countering awful abuses, physical, mental, in their home countries with immense bravery and courage. I, thank God, don't think I'll ever need to find, I hope. I hosted Farida Khalaf, the Yazidi girl who escaped ISIS, and which also included, as you mentioned, Vladimir Karamoza, who having escaped multiple poisonings is now incarcerated in Putin's prison system. So you are in touch with him via his wife and his incarceration must be totally fraught given the war in Ukraine. Yes, it's uh, look, he, he, he clearly knew it was coming. I, I spoke to him, uh, I would say, in March. I invited him to testify uh, in, at the United Nations. And he said to me, I will be happy to come uh, in June if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm free. You know, he, he had a premonition 
that he might be taken away. They were already passing laws that any criticism of the regime would result in a stiff prison sentence. And shortly after he was on CNN calling out Vladimir Putin, uh, he was taken away. And he's, he's been in prison since uh, April 11th, 2022. It's one of the most heroic people I've ever met, one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. He's the only one that uh, we invited who delivered his entire speech um, off by heart. Um, and he's someone who gives interviews. He's, he's a Russian dissident and he's giving you know brilliant English speeches off by heart. He's interviewing in French in Geneva way better than I could. And, and, uh, and he didn't grow up in Montreal. So he's just a very impressive guy and a very principled person. And he put his, his life and freedom on the line for the honor of the Russian people. He said that uh, he, he wants it to be recorded that, that uh, Vladimir Putin may be the dictator, but that for the honor of the Russian people, there were people who, who stood up and spoke out. And he, he stands up for the honor of the Russian people. I remember you um, afforded me this opportunity to meet him over drinks. I, I sat and chat with him uh, the night before, and he is so incredibly personable. And as you say, he spoke English as though it was a native tongue. And also, as you mentioned, social media is a, a massive part of your armory, the way you're able to communicate and go through walls, go through boundaries. One of the most shocking videos I saw of yours is when you were silenced at the UN in one of your more recent videos where your uh, speech was overruled. I, I'd always expected them to sort of listen with slight impatience to what you were saying and then move on. But they actually silenced you once and you put that out on video. Quite a nervous precedent, I thought, for the future of UN Watch. It is, uh, as you said, you know, a number of times, the, what, what happens is I'll sort of give you a behind the scenes, Johnny, if that's all right. Uh, of how things work. Uh, normally, when someone takes the floor at the United Nations and speaks, uh, if a country, for example, does not agree and wants to uh, respond and refute and reject what I said, they're meant to wait. And at the end of the debate, there's something called rights of reply. The chair asks, the debate is concluded, and the chair says, would anyone like to exercise a right of reply? And then Libya or Cuba or China can get a couple of minutes and can say everything that that UN Watch that Mr. Neuer said is all a lie, and they get their they get their their time, you know, a lot of time, but they don't like to do that. They they want to show the dictator back home that they were aggressive, and that they tried to interrupt me. So they use frivolous grounds, and they under the pretext of calling a procedural point of order, they say, wait wait interruption point of order. Uh, this NGO is not speaking on the right agenda item, and we're always speaking on the right agenda item. Agenda item might be human rights around the world whatever it is, we're speaking on the right agenda item, but they use the pretext of a procedural uh, objection in order to interrupt me, which they're not supposed to do. So I frequently get interrupted. And then the chair, the chair is, is a fellow ambassador of theirs. The chair is not a, a, an independent referee. The chair is a political person. Currently the chair is the ambassador of Argentina. Last year it was the ambassador of Fiji. So that, per, that ambassador has relations with China and Venezuela and Cuba and does not want to be on the um, receiving end of some kind of aggressive political action from either of those regimes. And uh, it's in their interest if, if Cuba raises their hand and says, Mr. Chair, interrupt Hillel. And now the chair has a decision. If the chair were merely guided by the law and procedure, they would say, and it's happened on some occasions where the chair said, uh, I remember the ambassador of Romania, uh, going back 15 years ago, defended me a number of times and said, he said, uh, we've heard you, you know, ambassador of Egypt, we heard you and, and uh, we don't accept it. We give you and watch back the floor. And if you want to, if you want to, if you want to say something, say it in your right of reply, don't object now. So the chair could uh, rebuke these frivolous interruptions and uh, instead the chair uh, is often not guided by objective principle, but is guided by what's in their interests of their country. Or the, and so they'll say, wait a minute, I now have Cuba or China or Russia or Pakistan interrupting, objecting. And I have this guy, UN Watch, this guy Hillel. And uh, who, who would I rather upset? And they don't want to upset Cuba. So, so what they'll usually try to do, and they, they can't do something that's completely arbitrary. So they'll usually try and say, uh, we ask the NGO to pay careful attention to what was just said. We give you back the floor. But you got to pay attention to what was said. So in this way, 
he doesn't seem so arbitrary and so authoritarian. He's giving me back the floor, but he hasn't embarrassed the Chinese or the Cuban or the other dictatorship. He said, but you've got to pay heed to what they said, even though you shouldn't pay heed to what they said. So that's what usually happens. And that's what you said, Johnny. You expected that they would that they would give me back the floor. But in recent times, a couple of occasions, the chair uh, actually just cut me off, uh, either by an objection that was made or without an objection. Uh, recently, I was I was speaking by video. It was during the Corona time, let's say, and I was speaking about uh, UNRWA, the UN agency that deals with Palestinians. How many of the teachers there are actually inciting anti-Semitism, praising Hitler, glorifying terrorist attacks, calling to murder Jews, and I listed their names. They're, it's public incitement. It's on their Facebook pages, and I list the name of the teacher in Gaza, and I quote what that person said. And the chair interrupted my video testimony and said. This is against the rules. You're not allowed to name names. You, you can't, you're, you're getting personal, which is ridiculous. I'm discussing a public uh, Facebook post by a, a UN official gets paid by our tax money. And I was interrupted and that was it. The video was turned off. Another time I said, um, I said, Mr. President, uh, or I, I, maybe it was a Madam President. I said, I just want to list the names of the countries who spoke just now. Cuba, China, Pakistan, Russia. And I started listing names. And then uh, I think Cuba Cuba objected and the chair cut me off. And uh, so these things are absolutely absurd and I think expose the corruption of basic values and the rule of law at the United Nations highest human rights body, which is very sad. Most regrettable and very sad indeed. And you just mentioned Argentina and Fiji as the chair of the sessions. And what's so fascinating in this fast moving multipolar world is that countries in the middle like that, whether they be geopolitically sensitive to regions like Argentina, like Fiji, are now having to think about what side they take. This sort of new uh, curtain which is uh, spreading between Russia, China and Iran. And it's encouraging some countries to think, hmm, who shall I side with? And we have seen Turkey <laughs> normalize with Israel, which is just fantastic news and seemed so extremely unlikely even a year ago. I spoke almost on the anniversary of today to Ambassador Doré Gold, who said to me, just imagine if, and it was like as though he had something knowing about to tell me or tease me. He said, um, how would you feel if Turkey suddenly turned around and said, we wanted relations with Israel? He said that diplomacy was a very challenging issue, very challenging to take people with very different values, not just geopolitical urgencies and needs, but actually taking people who don't believe in uh, things that you believe in and, and try and find commonality, which is obviously Israel's um, greatest uh, hope to make peace with all its neighbors, irrespective of their desires for democracy, etc. We live in a world where there are countries around us, immediately around us, or countries that are further away that, um, you know, have different values than we have. And diplomacy is all about managing those differences. You know, what would we do if tomorrow the president of Turkey all of a sudden said he wants a new relationship with Israel? And would you feel good about that? Uh, it's challenging. It's very challenging. And that's what being a diplomat means. My, my question is, um, because of the sudden changes of the Chinese pressure in Taiwan, the Russian pressure in Crimea and, and Ukraine and Ossetia, etc., how has your mission at the UN changed through the years? Well, uh, you know, the world changed. That's for sure. The, I remember a time when the United States was uh, this great superpower, and that is less so. You have the rise of China, uh, which is very noticeable at the UN. China was quite uh, passive at the UN, adopted a very quiet role. That's changed. They're quite aggressive. They are trying to take over various UN agencies. And um, and the US is weaker. And that, that's unfortunate. We used to see the US leading the free world. And they still do in a number of areas, but there, there does seem to be a, uh, a weakness that I did not uh, see going back some 18 years ago when I began in this position. Our, our own work uh, has evolved 
certainly we're now in the social media age. That was not when I began. We did not have social media in 2004. And, and you know, that's very fast moving and we're, we're, we're there. We're certainly present on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and are very much part of the conversation. And I see the UN sometimes themselves trying to do social media, sometimes in response to things that we, that we expose and they try to put out sometimes their propaganda, which is amusing. Uh, I would not want to be the social media manager for the Human Rights Council and to defend <laughs> their sorry record, but they try. Um, they, they don't get very many likes. And, uh, that, that, may, that may say something. Now, Hillel, you hold a BA in intellectual history and political science from Concordia, a Bachelor of Civil Law and a Bachelor of Laws from the McGill University Faculty of Law and a Master of Laws in Comparative Constitutional Law from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. You, you have to be a lawyer to work at the UN in your position, don't you? It's not enough just to be a politician. You have to wade through the legalities of what's being said. The instinct of being a politician isn't enough, is it? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I think there are different ways to tackle the work that we do. I, personally, I do find it very helpful to have a legal background. But uh, there are other people who might be journalists who spend a lot of time at the UN going through the material and understand it well. And if you're clever, I think you could tackle it as a journalist. You could tackle it as someone with an international relations background, not necessarily legal background. Uh, you could be a diplomat trained in diplomacy. So I, I think if you're, if you're smart and you know the world of the UN, you do have to have some some legal knowledge, I would say, is uh, certainly international law is is helpful. But there are, you know, my, my predecessor years ago was was not a lawyer. He had studied in the Fletcher School of Diplomacy in America. I was a very bright guy. So I, I think if, if, if you're clever and you spend time at the UN and you know how to decode the, the words that are being said, understand the political context, um, certainly law is not sufficient. You, you do need to know both law to understand certain concepts and resolutions, but to understand the motives and how things work, you need to know international politics. So I think you need both. Well, you've given me hope there is someone with a journalistic and public relations background there. Absolutely. The, 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 the journalists who work for Reuters and AP uh, have a tremendous challenge to translate complex uh, decisions, rulings, developments in language that is easily digestible for a regular a uh, citizen who has no idea what these UN committees are. Most people don't, even people in the UN don't know every UN committee. So that is a very big challenge and you really need to understand uh, how these things work. So I, I uh, chapeau to the UN reporters. Um, when, when I write a press release, I'll often try to see how, how would Reuters or AP, how would they communicate this in a simple, clear way where the, 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 the entire picture is simple and clear. And so they have to understand complicated things and they do a very good job. I'm going to pay tribute at this point to your social media feed on Twitter, which isn't just uh, beautifully presented in short sentences, but uh, also in the form of uh, the way you demonstrate an arc, a curve in terms of the complaints against, for example, the state of Israel compared to North Korea and Cuba and Libya and how Israel's at the top of the complaints league. You, 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 present... you see the symmetry. You see the symmetry, John. I, I see it there in front of me. Good. Flags we, 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 we try to put some effort into making things. It's a canvas. Every tweet is a, is a blank canvas. And if we can make it a little beautiful, there's some flags for color. And if you can have some symmetry and proper spacing, uh, I certainly... Put effort into it and i asked my colleagues to do the same i want to have respect for the reader and and the, for the respect for the reader means make make it clear for the reader don't don't have it clutter if you have hashtags everywhere yeah you have handles everywhere it's black it's blue it's a mess clear simple if you can symmetrical and beautiful excellent so i've had a social media lesson as well which i wasn't expecting now let's dive into the heart of this discussion and what's really happened to human rights, the idea that it has two very different schismatic outcomes and meanings. We seem to have uh, two very different worldviews of what this means now. And I'll talk about the great Professor Gerald Steinberg in just a moment, but it seems to have been going on for about 21 years since Durban won. Professor Steinberg of NGO Monitor, a previous guest on Johnny Gould's Jewish State, told me that Durban 1 proved, quotes, a disaster in the making, he told me, an ambush, 
a kidnapping, no less, of human rights. And he started it to end promotion of, quotes, politically and ideologically motivated anti-Israel agendas by NGOs. I have to be honest, and I hope Hillel will understand if I tell this little secret here. Back again in the early 2003, 2004, NGO Monitor was no longer a one-person operation. I actually had a research assistant and a website. And we got requests to do more research and some funding from all private donors. I used the UN Watch model as the, uh, the, the template for building NGO Monitor. Israel is in the front line of this schism between, for example, the human rights led by Palestinianism and those of us who are supporters of the State of Israel, Zionists or pro-Jewish state supporters. But Israel's not the only frontline country, or is it, Hillel? Does it all surround the State of Israel? Is that the most schismatic, in, in, uh, intractable uh, war that's going on in the world? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, actually, we see that it used to be the premise that the Middle East was all about the Arab-Israel conflict, or in more recent years, what was narrowed into the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And we were always told by people like John Kerry that nothing could happen in the Middle East uh, until the Palestinian issue was resolved. No, 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 and no. And that proved to be a false premise. The United Arab Emirates has incredible ties now with Israel. These are dating back about two years with the advent of the Abraham Accords. We have the same with Bahrain, same with Morocco, some new you know, some new openings with Sudan, some uh, new openings with Saudi Arabia, still unofficial, but Saudi Arabia allowing overflights. So that's quite dramatic. Uh, and of course, n nothing the UAE or Bahrain could have done would have been possible if, if Saudi Arabia did not give the okay. Those countries are very, very much dependent on, on the Saudi sphere of influence. So it means the Saudi Arabia gave the okay for that. That you know, Saudi Arabia is is the custodian of of, of the of the mosques of, of Mecca, and that's a very influential and important Muslim country, Arab country. So uh, we see that that the Middle East itself, uh, Israel, is not the main issue. The, the the fact that that hundreds of thousands have been murdered in Syria has nothing to do with Israel. That's an internal uh, dispute, if you want to call it that, or in, in, internal oppression and mass killings by a dictator against his people. And the same would be with a failed state like Libya, a failed state of Yemen. These uh, catastrophic failures in the Middle East have absolutely nothing to do with Israel. And on the contrary, it, it, more and more countries in the Middle East see Israel as the solution, not the problem. The reason that, that the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Bahrainis are reaching out to Israel and to a certain extent, Egypt and Jordan as well, and now Morocco, is because they want more of Israel, not less of Israel. They're afraid of Iran. They're afraid of the Muslim Brotherhood. They're afraid of ISIS. They don't want Assad. So, um, you know, that's just the Middle East. And of course, if you go beyond, you have conflicts all, all over the world. And it's true that some who, who have been uh, obsessed with the Jews if, if someone who has an obsession, a, an obsession with Jews, will always interpret world events as it's the Jews' fault, or you know, today it's Israel's fault, um, but that is an irrational obsession. We mentioned just before the declining power, if you like, of the U.S. as the world's policeman. You're urging the government of the U.S. to terminate a commission of inquiry which targets Israel perpetually. The 47 Nation Council. It's dominated by China and Cuba and Libya, Venezuela, Somalia, singling out Israel constantly at every meeting with bias built into its permanent agenda. But the US's internal politics is changing, particularly with the incumbent Democratic presidency. Hillel, are they as steadfast a partner as in previous decades? A good question. You know, look, U.S. Um, U.S. attitudes towards Israel have fluctuated. If uh, if one goes back to the 1950s, the early years, they were not terribly supportive. In the, the, the era of Eisenhower, America was not very supportive of Israel. 
that began to change under John F. Kennedy. Uh, Golda Meir would meet him, and uh, he was, I believe, the first to uh, provide some kind of missiles for Israel. And I think that really began with with Kennedy. Lyndon Johnson was a, a great friend of Israel and supported Israel in major ways. And then, and then uh, after the Six Day War, Israel proved itself in the battlefield. Israel defeated Soviet arms. Israel defeated numerous Arab armies that were stacked against it, ready, calling to destroy Israel. Israel defeated Egypt, Syria. Uh, and the others, and they were all armed by Soviet weapons. So I think the U.S. Uh, Defense Department, the Pentagon, the generals, and other people dealing with strategy uh, were impressed by this uh, little country. And and so then you had more and more support. You know, Nixon, um, not so much with Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter was less of a supporter of Israel. He played an important role in Camp David, but he was not as friendly to Israel. He became even less friendly since he left the presidency. Uh, Ronald Reagan, very pro-Israel, George Bush Sr., a bit less, Clinton, yes. So you had some fluctuations, but certainly uh, under Obama, uh, Obama did support Israel in many significant ways, including aid and, and, and many ways. But certainly the, the, the uh, atmospherics w- were different uh, with Obama. And under the Biden administration, I'd say Biden himself radiates a friendly approach, there's no question. But the administration as a whole is uh, not as, certainly not as solidly as pro-Israel under the Trump administration. And I have a lot of criticisms of Donald Trump for all kinds of things that people are well, well aware of. But on Israel, it, it, it generally, he was very supportive. Not, not always, but generally quite supportive, certainly at the UN. And the Biden administration is generally supportive, but it's not a guarantee. It's not wall to wall. And you do have some criticisms of Israel, some reservations uh, here and there. So there are some differences, and that reflects what you said before, that in the Democratic Party, there is certainly a far-left camp that is gaining increasing power with the so-called squad, people like AOC and others. Let's mention George W. Bush there in the middle there. We didn't quite get to him. He was a very solidly uh, pro-Israel guy, particularly around the Iraq war. And then, of course, we know all about Donald Trump and his administration on so many levels helping to break the impasse leading to the Abraham Accord. But uh, Hillel, many people will not be aware that the council has condemned Israel more times than it's condemned. And this is a startling statistic and one which you continually bring to attention. More times than Iran and Syria and North Korea put together. Terrorist groups, Hamas and Islamic Jihad are totally ignored. And of course, by being members of this committee, China, for example, gets a completely free pass over its treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. North Korea over its treatment of nearly every one of its citizens. How can we bring the UN to book? Who in the West is able to correct the mission creep of the UN into this bunch of dictators controlling it? Every member of the UN uh, has a role to play. And certainly the stronger countries, members of the Security Council have a greater role to play. And Johnny, I would say it's our democracies need to speak speak up. And in order for them to do it, we have to pressure them. So uh, everyone who's watching this needs to uh, ask themselves how they can call on their elected representatives, their foreign minister, their prime minister, their president to take action to, to uh, safeguard the original principles of the UN and to oppose dictatorships in all the ways that are possible. And they're not doing it uh, very much. They do it from time to time, but not very much. And it's our democracies need to lead the fight. If they don't, no one else will. One of the worst examples of cocking a snook at democracy was Mahmoud Abbas, whose 1982 PhD on the secret relationship between Nazism and Zionism says the murder of six million Jews, it's very difficult for me to, to read this being a survivor's ransom, probably like a similar um, family relationship to your own. The murder of six million Jews is a fantastic lie. In 2018, he said Jews usury uh, provoke the Holocaust. And of course, we've just seen him insult his German hosts in Berlin by accusing Israel of 50 Holocausts. But Will he be further isolated or loved more for his despicable comments? 
They'll be completely ignored by Messrs. Corbyn and his gang, for example, AOC, Amnesty International, and all the others. Human Rights Watch. Well, it was despicable what he just said. Yeah, he said he accused Israel of carrying out 50 holocausts. That was in response to a question he was asked about his role, the PLO's role, in massacring Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics 50 years ago in 1972. And apparently Abbas was directly involved with that. I read somewhere that he was involved in financing the operation. So he was asked about that while in Germany. And rather than acknowledge the, the sins of the past, as, um, as all should do, he instead accused Israel of committing 50 holocausts, which was a, a disgraceful thing to say, false and disgraceful. Johnny, you ask whether he'll be held accountable. And uh, well, you just, you just cited a comment he made a few years ago saying that the Jews provoked the Holocaust. He was condemned at the time by a number of European countries, but afterwards he was treated again with, uh, with great you know, admiration around the world. And the PLO is almost never held to account the Palestinian Authority. Uh, on the contrary, they're, they're coddled by our democracies. Mm. So if, if, if he wasn't held to account yet, I think it's unlikely that anything will happen beyond the few condemnations that were made the other day. Which they were, and again, uh, they will come and go, those condemnations, and they'll come back when, when they are needed to, sadly. Um, if we talk about Iran now, Hillel, in recent months, the theocratic dictatorship seems to have become more brazen in its violent attacks, even in the U.S., Let's hold Iran responsible for the stabbing of Salman Rushdie, knifed multiple times on stage in New York. National Security Advisor John Bolton confirmed on some kind of hit list. The question is, how many wake-up calls does America need in allowing the nuclear deal, the JCPOA of Iran, a permit to enrich uranium to stop it becoming another nuclear power? Okay, you just described a litany of attacks by Iran recently in the United States. You mentioned the stabbing of Salman Rushdie after Khomeini called for him to be killed. And Khamenei, the current Ayatollah, reiterated that fatwa on Twitter just a couple of years ago. Uh, then the uh, alleged assassination attempt against John Bolton and other former top U.S. officials. And I have to mention the attempted uh, assassination of Masih Alinejad. Iranian dissident journalist, women's rights activist who now lives in Brooklyn, New York, and a man with a loaded AK-47 assault rifle was found outside her home. The gun was loaded. And this was someone who um, is believed to be connected to, to Iran. So uh, these are, as you said, brazen attempts of assassination on U.S. soil while America and, and its European allies are sitting in Vienna with the Iranians working on a nuclear deal. And who who would negotiate with people who are assassinating human rights activists in, in Brooklyn, in your country? I think it's absolutely absurd. And the fact that America is not responding is a case of the folly of the virtuous uh, encouraging the, the malice of the wicked, to paraphrase Churchill. Heaven forfend this from happening, but a nuclear Iran is an existential threat to the West, and in particular Israel, of course, who they perpetually threaten through rhetoric on Twitter, and in speeches and in their parliament, and of course, terror proxies. Israel works night and day in Syria with intelligence across the world, around Gaza, Judea and Samaria, Lebanon, encountering Iran's aggression. Diplomatically, Hillel, what are you able to do at the UN to stop this? Is it just a case of perpetually bringing it to the world's attention? Well, you know, in the end, at the United Nations, you need member states to really take action. Uh, we try to be the voice that that you know, the the moral the voice of moral clarity to raise the bar. But ultimately, we do need the UK, the US, France, Germany, Canada to step step up to the plate. That's that's what we're trying to do: uh, make the case, raise the bar, be the voice of moral clarity, and hope that governments will follow and that they'll take the lead. Indeed, it's uh, becoming very, very clear the mission of UN Watch. The brutal attack on Rushdie, who's lived under this threat of a fatwa since the late 1980s. Not one word of condemnation from the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, Amnesty International and the UN Human Rights Council. Can you crystallise actually, Hillel? We all have our ideas about why they are silent on Iran. 
Can you crystallize from your eyewitness view of these people? Why are they silent? Do they like dictatorship? Do they like top-down oppression of their people? Is that the way they were brought up? Why do these people stay silent in the face of obvious oppression of millions of people and the potential enslavement of the free world if we let them? Mm. Look, um, uh, as you said, a number of groups have been silent. Uh, we, we looked at the Twitter feeds of Amnesty, of Human Rights Watch, of the UN Human Rights Office, of Guterres, and indeed, as of a couple of days ago, they were completely silent on the stabbing of Guterres. But some people did speak out. There may have been one Amnesty chapter somewhere that said something on the website that wasn't on their Twitter account. Uh, Ken Roth actually, I believe, did say something about Rushdie's attack on his own Twitter account, but it wasn't on his organization's account, which indicates that it's not the organization's priority. The organization decides priorities, and if it's, if it's not something that's on their regular Twitter feed, that says something. And if you ask me why, I think there is a, a folly, and maybe a pathology, where um, human rights groups, their first question isn't, isn't, is there a human rights violation happening? But rather, uh, how does it fit into their worldview? Their worldview is uh, a, an ideological worldview that sees itself as anti-colonialist, which ultimately today means anti-Western. And the notion that they might criticize Iran, they do do it from time to time. They don't feel comfortable doing it. They feel that they're being Orientalists in the words of the notorious Edward Said. And so they, they feel that they're being colonialists. So they're much more comfortable condemning the UK or the US for alleged sins, uh, or certainly Israel, than they are those who, in their views, are deemed as the oppressed. It's kind of an arbitrary, you know, Manichaean system, sons of light, sons of darkness, and somehow the uh, those in the third world, as it used to be called in Africa and Asia and in the Islamic world, are somehow deemed to be oppressed. And in fact, they might be imperialists and, and, and murderers, which is the case of Iran, which is a very imperialistic country and which is a murderous country. But the many of these groups like Amnesty and sort of have a Jeremy Corbyn type of worldview. And their first question is not, uh, what are the human rights issues at stake? But it's something much more ideological, which is kind of an anti-Westernism, and uh, it's it's quite pathological. It's such a luxury opinion when these people live in the West and they can go out and do anything they want, associate with people and their friends, and protest as they want. I find it. I mean, I think we find it a complete mystery. There's. It's like as though there's been a complete disconnect from their parents and even their grandparents' history. These people who were born in the 70s or 80s, they've forgotten about the advantages that they have of living where they do in order to make these comments, these positions. Yes, look, I, I think that democracies should be held to account and we should constantly be improving our own countries. And, and I live in Switzerland and you live in the UK and we, we want to hold our governments to account to make them better. But if you don't, if you're not able to see the difference, between a flawed liberal democracy and a uh, totalitarian regime like China, dictatorship like Russia, Cuba, Venezuela, then you, you are in the words, the words of Salman Rushdie in 2010, he called Amnesty International morally bankrupt. Once again, Salman Rushdie in 2010 said Amnesty International was morally bankrupt because they were doing business with a, 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 an, org an organization called Cage Prisoners, which was connected to the Taliban, a gentleman named Moazam Beg in, in London who was uh, connected to the Taliban and Amnesty was working with them. And an Amnesty head of the women's rights division, Gita Sagal protested internally, said, how can we work collaborate with uh, supporters of the Taliban who are enemies of women's rights? Amnesty would not listen to her. She protested, they had fired her. They fired Gita Sagal. And that's when Salman Rushdie said, this organization is morally bankrupt. Hilal, I wonder if you know this. I went to school with Mozambique I was in the same class as him in Birmingham, England, and his brother Azam, and I knew his family. And his father was a Pakistani guy. This is before the Iranian Revolution. And he was a respectful British Pakistani who'd obviously been born back in Pakistan. He brought these children up. I went to school with uh, Mozam and his brother, and long before, and his cousins, and long before, it became outed that he'd been involved with the Taliban. The rumor around Birmingham was that he was out there fighting 
for the Taliban, something which he denied. This was the talk of my former city. Um, and uh, I did not know that. And I, I, I'm sure that it's not due to your influence that he went that way, <laughs> but I'm sure despite. So. Do you want the kicker here, Hillel? It was, a Jewish, it was a Jewish primary school. He went to school in a Jewish school. Really? And now, years later, you know, when I was there, it was 70-30 Jewish and non-Jewish. Uh, and now it's 85-15 Bangladeshi-Pakistani. Um, it is a beacon of hope. But really, it's about defending and educating the 40 or 50 Jewish children who still remain in the school, the 250 others. So that's really I what's going on. Sure, I know, I know that there are other countries where, where that's the case. You have historically Jewish schools that remain, even though the population might be a, might now today be a small percentage Jewish. I think it was the case in Ireland, perhaps. And yeah. certainly, I know I know in Jamaica there's a school called Hillel Academy, uh, which is an excellent private school and uh, <laughs> shares it shares my name, and it's got a, a very tiny uh, percentage of Jewish students. They have a, a very teeny bit of Jewish content. They might be closed for one or another Jewish holiday. Um, but otherwise, a very good private school, as I'm told by a Jamaican diplomat. Um, and I know about it because one of my favorite Jamaican singers, a man named uh, Sean Paul, uh, went to Hillel Academy. And actually, his family was, uh, I think, a, a contributor to, to and a sponsor of the school. So, uh, so there you go. It's amazing how many Jamaicans have Sephardi descent. It's like yes, an, right. it's like an amazing thing. Um, Hillel, that was a bit of mission creep from us uh, there. We, we move back to the um, concept of our interview, and that is for Israel supporters, this terrible apartheid lie that is trumpeted, tell a big lie, tell it again and again and again, and it sticks. The apartheid lie about the Jewish state, fanned by social media, is particularly vexatious. Of course, you know, we know the truth is Muslim Arabs, Christians, non-Jews of any uh, stripe in general are afforded more freedom and security than they would be anywhere else in the region. And of course, it's the only country in the Middle East who are afforded a democratic stake in their government. Um, I was told proudly by Yosef Haddad and Emily Schrader that more than 50% of the doctors that qualified this year were non-Jewish in, uh, in the Jewish state. And it spawned probably your most famous quote uh, on the apartheid in the UN chamber, culminating in, where are your Jews? Mr. President, one year ago in this chamber, I asked the Arab states a simple question. Where are your Jews? My question was met with dead silence. Millions of people worldwide watched the video, witnessing for themselves the hypocrisy and double standards that characterizes much of what is said and done here. Today, I have come to provide the answer to my question. Algeria, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, Yemen, Libya. Your Jews fled as refugees after suffering persecution and deadly pogroms like the Farhud of Baghdad in 1941. Fortunately, countries like Israel, the US, Canada, France, and others opened their doors offering citizenship and equal rights. These Jewish refugees from Arab lands whose suffering and losses the UN has never addressed put their hardship behind them and built great lives for their families. Now let us contrast this with the situation of those descended from Arab refugees who fled the area of British Mandatory Palestine during the invasion of nascent Israel by Arab armies. What is holding them back? The answer is simple. Palestinians are the only population in the world not eligible for services by the UN Refugee Agency. Instead, these descendants are governed by UNRWA, which holds generation after generation trapped in refugee camps, denied integration in the Arab countries they were born in, and denied resettlement elsewhere. Some of UNRWA's donors are waking up to the problem. As Swiss Foreign Minister has recently put it, by supporting UNRWA, we are only keeping the conflict alive. I thank you, Mr. President. And that is a fact, isn't it, that there are no Jews left in Jordan and Lebanon and maybe a handful of Jews in Syria. I saw a, a beautiful ceremony in, in Tehran of a shul that still seems to exist, but how long will that go on? I mean, the apartheid actually belongs in every other country apart from Israel in the Middle East. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's uh, The charge is absurd, and you might call it a case of psychological projection where the, the, the very uh, crime of which the accusers are guilty of, they're projecting on their, on their enemy. 
the facts remain that Israel is the country where Arabs and Muslims enjoy more human rights than any other Middle Eastern state in the region. Uh, Arabs, uh, unlike in uh, Egypt or Jordan or Lebanon or Syria, can actually vote in completely free and fair elections in Israel. They can run for election. There's an Arab Islamic party that is part of the coalition, a key part of the coalition. So things are not perfect for the Arabs in Israel. There are problems, absolutely. There are problems in the territories, which are a more complicated situation because you have the Oslo Accords that divides Palestinian and Israeli jurisdiction. You have a Palestinian government, Palestinian authority, Palestinian uh, police and so forth. So that's a complicated uh, area. But um, again, if you look at throughout the Middle East, if you're Amnesty International and you talk about alleged apartheid in Israel, but you don't say anything about the fact that Palestinians actually in Lebanon can't work. You just mentioned that Arabs in Israel are doctors and lawyers and pharmacists, even disproportionately so in, in, in some of these fields like uh, in medicine or pharmacy or others. In Lebanon, Palestinians can't even work. Maybe that's apartheid. Apartheid is, 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 a, is probably a unique system in South Africa, but it's certainly a systematic form of discrimination. But Amnesty International was not very interested in that. They did a report on it many years ago. But it's not something they're campaigning about, but the Israel thing is their massive campaign. So it's clearly not justified by the facts at all. Anyone who goes to Israel sees that it's a multicultural society and you will see Arabs everywhere. If you're in Jerusalem, if you're in parts of Tel Aviv, uh, if you're in Haifa, if you're on the streets, the street signs are in Hebrew and Arabic. So it's really preposterous. And, and it's, uh, it's frankly an injustice to the victims of South African apartheid to compare the two. It is. It's an absurdity and uh, a terrible injustice of language. And Hitler, there's much for you to be getting on with in dictatorships around the world. But what about human rights abuses here in the Western world? I mean, we, we can't really ignore that, can we? We all know about modern slavery. We all know that it exists in first world cities and towns, even villages throughout the Western Europe here in the UK, too. I remember there being an outburst of COVID in Leicester city centre in the East Midlands of England more than any other area. And I thought to myself, I suspect I know why. There's an unregulated sweatshop in that place, which seems to go unnoticed. People go past nail bars where I'm told the technicians, for want of a better word, are slaves themselves. Do you ever think it would be useful to your cause of human rights advocacy to include such abuse closer to home in Canada, Spain, Britain, France, Italy, for example? There are compelling human rights issues in the countries you mentioned and in really in every country. If you begin to open up problems that exist in every country, our organization is small. We're under 10 people and we have to prioritize. And when we look at the United Nations and we think if, if we only have 90 seconds to speak, what are, we going, what are we going to focus on? It's going to be the worst regimes where they don't have any mechanisms to speak out. And so the truth is I don't have enough time to, to go into this very important issue. But let me just say that I think just as a, a, a hospital room has to do triage, an emergency room will first deal with the person who's got you know a knife in their back and who's been shot before they deal with someone who's got a bad leg. Uh, so too, the Human Rights Council should address countries where there are no mechanisms for uh, you know, institutional checks and balances, where there's no free press, where there's no free and fair elections, and where there's systematic abuses, like China with a million Uyghurs put in, Uyghur Muslims put in camps, Russia, complete destruction of any civil rights, massacring innocent people in Ukraine, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Libya. These places need our urgent attention. And, and the other, the democracies that have problems, those can be dealt with through the existing institutions. And when I was a lawyer in America, I challenged the US government on a number of human rights issues. My colleagues brought cases to the Supreme Court in the United States. The US, Canada and UK have systems to deal with the problems. When I'm at the UN, I'm trying to focus on countries that have zero systems to deal with it. I'm trying to help the people, I'm not trying to even the score by how many points are scored against the country. I'm asking who are we going to help? And if you get the UN to focus their time on Canada, uh, it's very nice, but th those things are being addressed in Canada anyway. So I, I don't think the UN can add a, a, really a great amount uh, when it's to democracies, the problems that democracies have. And I don't think that should be their first priority. 
Understood very clearly. And finally, Hillel, as the multipolar world continues to change and threaten the world order to challenge it, does your indefatigable work at the UN fill you with despair or are you optimistic about the future? That is a good question. Uh, we always try to be optimistic, otherwise we wouldn't have uh, wouldn't go on. Uh, the challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, known to some as the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. Uh, you, if you if you say something, it could be canceled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a journalist, and um, and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that that, to be honest, really really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy. To be honest, to be to be truth tellers, uh, so I am deeply concerned. But um, we we never give up hope, and certainly we we go every day in fighting for what's right. And um, we have tremendous amount of support around the world. And those who are interested can go to our website, youwouldnwatch.org, and urge people to sign up. The first thing you can do is just sign up on our website. This way, you'll be informed. Uh, if you go to youwouldnwatch.org, uh, sign up to our newsletter. You'll know about petitions, campaigns, key facts. And that's the beginning of the solution. It's not the end, but it's the beginning. Hillel, you are uh, a positive spirit and an essential a diplomat for the world, indeed the Jewish world. I think you are a, 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 the Jewish world's number one diplomat outside of Israel. And I thank you very much for your generosity of time and spirit in joining me today on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, Johnny, for your very kind words and for hosting me. And uh Congratulations on your excellent program and uh, and uh, keep, keep going. Thank you, I will do. Thank you. And, and you likewise. Thank you. <laughs> Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy. The best guests and their most heartfelt views, a relay of their missions to a worldwide audience. Hi, it's Johnny again, just popping in at the end of this one. 100 episodes along, and I'm proud that it's fast become the podcast of record. This is coverage of the Jewish and Israeli worlds that just doesn't get properly aired in mass media. And I'm not ashamed to ask for your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received to support my efforts, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. Your donation can also be made with gift aid. And it's so easy to do. Just click on this. Donorbox.org slash JG podcast. That's donorbox.org slash JG podcast. Are you in? Please share my series with your friends and thank you for listening. Johnny Gould's Jewish State, bringing Israel and the diaspora together.